Again, it's good to see you this morning. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to uh, John's Gospel, the second chapter. And I'm going to begin John chapter 2. I'll begin with verse 12, actually. It's a transition verse. Jesus has just uh, turned the water into wine in Cana and Galilee. And we're told in verse 12 that after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is page 887. They stayed in Capernaum for just a few days, and then verse 13 says the Passover, the Jews, was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, which probably explains why they stayed just a few days in Capernaum. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. The money changers weren't changing money to buy oxen and sheep and pigeons. This was for the annual temple tax. And uh, that tax became due the month before the month of Passover and then continued through Passover. And it was required that the temple tax, the tax to the temple, which goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, but that that tax be paid with a Tyrian coin, which uh, had especially uh, pure silver, which was especially pure. And making a whip of cords... Jesus drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and with the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you do to show us that, uh, did, did you, you know, do you do, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when, therefore, he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So it's clear he was doing many signs, probably acts of healing, but John doesn't go into detail. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, I ask you now, please, to make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer, show us how these words apply to our lives by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's quite a shift, isn't it, from last week in Cana to this week in Jerusalem, where we see Jesus really transformed from, on the one hand, being so mischievous and now being so indignant. What an attitude difference. What an attitude difference. And yet in each instance, Jesus is being fully and completely himself. He's being the Son of God. 
He is being the Word incarnate. He's being God in flesh, God as man. And it is for us to know and to embrace Christ in the fullness with which John presents him to us. This passage is divided into three sections. The first is in verses 13 to 7. We see Jesus' indignation. We'll spend most of our time on that. In the second, in verses 18 to 22, we see his vindication when he's asked, what, do you, what sign do you do to show us you have authority to do these things? And then thirdly, in verses 35 to 25, 23 to 25, we see his hesitation. He was not entrusting himself to anyone. Well, as I say, we're going to spend most of our time on his indignation, but then wrap the other two into our conclusion. Jesus was indignant, folks. There's no question about, about that. There's no point in, in denying it. You may remember in the book of Acts, Paul was so provoked by idolatry that he saw in Athens that he came out of hiding to preach the gospel to the philosophers. Well, here, Jesus is provoked also. He's so provoked by what he sees taking place in the temple that he makes a whip out of cords. He improvises a whip, and he literally lashes out, and he drives off the livestock owners along with their livestock, the oxen and the sheep. He overturns the tables of the money changers. You can just hear the coins rolling through the course of the Gentiles, and he tells the pigeon salesmen to take their filthy cages and just get out. Just get out. You know, the Bible more than 40 times warns us not to provoke God to anger. Again and again, it tells us that, which tells us also a couple of things. One is that evil does provoke God. Evil does provoke him to anger. And the more belligerent and brazen and high-handed the evil is, the more hostile is God's response. The more indignation God knows. The second thing it tells us, not only does God, is God provoked by evil, he really is, but the second thing is that God is, of course, holy. He's not short-fused. He's not impatient like we are at all. In fact, he's long-suffering. That's part of his holiness. God is not petty like we can be. He's not self-centered like we can be. He's holy. So the second thing that we're also told that we, gotta, we have to know when we realize that, that uh, we're warned against provoking God to anger is that, is that evil provokes God because God is holy. That is why evil provokes God. So God is provoked by evil, and he's provoked by evil because he is holy. He not only sees the attitudes, he not only sees the acts that are done, he sees the hard heart underneath those attitudes and underneath those acts. In verse 25, we read about Jesus, it's true of God, that he knew what was in man. He knew what was in man. You know, we, we see what people do, but with the same, in fact, greater clarity, God sees what is in us. He sees what we, what we are. God also sees the hardening that spreads from doing evil. He sees the hardening of hearts that spreads from that, the loss of the fear of God, the erosion of faith. He sees how evil deceives others, how evil emboldens others to try it for themselves. He got away with it, I can too. 
he has no regrets, I won't either. God sees how evil by nature invites and welcomes further evil, how evil spreads like cancer. It, 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 it escalates. The corruption of evil escalates. Every evil act is a seed. It is a thing in itself, but it is also a seed. It may be the fruit of something else, the result of something, but then it itself becomes a seed for something else. He absolutely sees that. Jesus knew that the same evil that would lead the Jews to turn Judaism upside down, that same evil that led them to turn it upside down by raising their secular wants above their spiritual commitment would lead to their crucifying him. He saw that. He knew that would happen. Now, I have to clarify a little bit. When I say turning Judaism upside down, turning, uh, turning to secular ones, putting those ahead of spiritual commitment, this is what I mean by secular ones. I mean the hunger for respect and acceptance and advancement and prosperity and influence and safety and security with the authorities. Secular wants. And they put those secular wants ahead of their spiritual commitment. And by spiritual commitment, I'm talking about living for God's glory. So that our love and our obedience really reflects on Him. Rather than on ourselves. Because that's what's in our heart. He really is in our heart. And our worship lifts Him up. Because we really are looking to Him. But when the priority gets inverted, it's evil. I mean, it really is evil. And only bad is going to be spun out as cloth. You know, where, there's, where there's spiritual rebellion, where there's moral rebellion, where there's the, the disorder, disorder of life due to rebellion among God's people, there are always good reasons. Did you know that? There are always good reasons for it. The problem is that good reasons are used to set aside God's truth and holiness. They're used to actually betray God's truth and to betray God's holiness. Think with me about that. We always have good reasons for doing bad things. We always have good reasons for this inversion, to justify our inversion. Money changes in the temple. They were changing money. Why? For the sake of the convenience and the sport and support to help the, the pilgrims pay their annual tax, their temple tax with coins that were of pure silver. Well, what, what's wrong with, with providing convenience and providing support? It's good. That's a good reason. The livestock and the birds were there bellowing and bleeding and fluttering to ensure that the pilgrims could offer certified grade A sacrifices. What was wrong with that? Everybody's for that. That's a very good reason. That's a very good thing. But God commanded also. God commanded every square inch of that entire temple from the outer courts to the Holy of Holies be set aside for undistracted, undivided worship. And he says that for our worship to be pure and undefiled, our hearts and our minds must be humbly and truly engaged with him. 
Jesus loved the temple because he loved God. When he was just 12, he stayed behind at the temple when his family caravan pulled out of Jerusalem to go home after a Passover. And You know the story from Luke's gospel. When Mary and Joseph found him, it was over three days later. They looked for him for three days after the end of the first day, realizing he was gone. His response to all their distress, so typical of a naive 12-year-old, his response to all their distress was, why are you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? He loved the temple because he loved God. And now it's 18 years later, he's back in the temple, and his indignation is fueled by the same love. And you see this in his words when he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is my father's house. Jesus loved the temple because he loved God. And before we jump ahead to the next paragraph where Jesus refers to his body as the temple, I want to pause. I don't want to get there prematurely because it has to be said that Jesus' love for the temple is mirrored. Or let me put it this way. His love for the temple mirrors in a pale way his far greater love for the church. which is now, as you know, called throughout the New Testament, the temple of God. But which, Jesus, but which Jesus describes in his parables, which Jesus refers to in his parables as his bride. You think he loves the temple? He really loves his church. If you think he was zealous for the temple that Herod built, He is very, very zealous for the temple that he's built where there's worship in spirit and in truth. As a matter of fact, when we turn to the book of Revelation, Jesus' indignation in John 2 is actually mirrored in the book of Revelation where he is addressing the seven churches of the Lycus Valley and what today is Turkey. In five of the seven instances, you see the same indignation. He rebukes Ephesus for losing its first love. He rebukes Pergamon for putting up with false teachers that he compares to Balaam, a terrible Old Testament pagan king. He rebukes Thyatira for tolerating and Jezebel and tolerating and, um, and uh, a prophetess he calls Jezebel. He rebukes Laodicea for having faith that's like tepid water. And he warns his churches. He says, repent, or I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He warns, I will strike the children of Jezebel dead. He warns, I will spit the tepid out of my mouth. Do you not hear the cracking of the whip that was first heard in the temple in Jerusalem? Jesus saw the disdain for the temple sprang from disdain for God and his holiness. And I think it's exactly the same uh, is true for the church. The disdain for the church and his mission and its identity and what we are springs from disdain for God himself. 
And yet that, that disdain is still seen as good reasons that are elevated above God's truth and God's holiness to justify what God directly opposes. A disdain is always justified with reasons that are good. Churches defend abortion. Many denominations are pro-abortion. You know that. They defend abortion in the name of support for women and freedom. Who can be against support for women and freedom? But God says, you shall not murder. Not those I've created in my image. No, you're not. No, you're not. And the incarnation absolutely settles the question of when human life begins. What do we confess? What does the Bible teach? I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That settles it. many Christians do you know? And it's true in the church. It's difficult. It's painful for parents. But how many Christians do you know shack up, live together in the name of love or in the name of, of need? I'm an adult. I'm a sexual. I have needs. But God says, my will is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you keep the marriage bed undefiled, that you marry a believer only. That's what God says. So too many seminaries today, our academics, our church, Christian academics, denigrate the Bible in the name of intellectual integrity and academic freedom. Is intellectual integrity important? Yes, it's good. Is academic freedom good? Sure, it's good. But they, in the name of that, for those reasons, denigrate Scripture. And then they cast aside the atoning death of Christ as primitive brutality. That cannot possibly be what the Bible actually teaches. That cannot possibly be what the gospel really is. But God says, my word is true, even if it makes every man a liar. And of Jesus, God says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace fell on him by his wounds. We are healed. Good reasons to set aside the holiness and the truth of God. The good reasons we rely on as an excuse or as a justification for our disdain of God and his word. Jesus loves his church. And I think it's important that we hear his whip cracking today. That our ears not be stuffed with cotton. The question, though, is not about others, it's about us. Where do we as individuals and where do we as Church of the Atonement, where are we overturning God's holiness, turning a deaf ear to his holiness and his truth for, for good reasons. Where do we do that in our lives, in our church? And this isn't, of course, this is not an invitation to witch hunt, but to reflect, honestly to reflect. You think, well, Jesus died 
Jesus died for my sins. He did die for your sins, brothers and sisters. That's true. And it is just as true to say that Jesus died to create a church through whom he would reach the entire world with salvation. And that is a calling to holiness. Secondly, we see Jesus' vindication. In verses 8 through 23, the Jews ask, what sign do you show us that you're doing, you know, for doing all these things? What's your sign? That's not like, you know, Capricorn. That's, what's your authority? Show us the goods. Show us divine power. And Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And the disciples later realized that Jesus was referring to his body. His body is the temple. Because he's the word. He's the word become flesh. He's God in the flesh. But this is the way Jesus responded. Now, it's ironic, isn't it? Because the passage indicates Jesus was doing all kinds of signs that aren't enumerated, but that brought, were bringing people to believe in him. But they're wanting, like, some grand sign. I want to make two comments about the sign that Jesus named and described. The first is that it is, of course, more than a sign. Jesus rising from the dead is the substance. It is the substance of his absolute authority. If you ask me the question, I don't think it's a chicken and egg question. If you ask me the question, is, do I know Jesus has absolute authority because he rose from the dead? Or do I know that Jesus rose from the dead because he has absolute authority? My answer is, I know He has absolute authority because he rose from the dead. It's not just a sign at all. It's the substance of his authority and power. And in rising from the dead, he defeated Satan. He conquered death, did he not? He broke the power of sin. He triumphed over all his enemies, beginning with the officials who are standing before him and demanding that sign. Remember how Jesus put it. He didn't just say the resurrection. That's not what he said. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Destroy, it was imperative. You destroy, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What was his point? That their worst rebellion would be the very means of Jesus accomplishing his vindication. Their worst rebellion their most terrible evil would be the very means that would be used to bring about his complete victory and his complete triumph. And I want to say to you this morning that this principle, I believe, is always at work. It's always at work when we see evil appear to triumph, when we see wickedness seem to get ahead. I think that it is always at work, though as here at the time, In John 2, it isn't immediately clear. It is always at work that it results. It is a means to Christ's total triumph and his conquering and his victory. And it is always this way because Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And this is why we're told in Scripture to give thanks in everything. That's how we can do that. This is why we're never without hope. This is Jesus' vindication. And then thirdly, we see his hesitation. The text says, it's a very sober conclusion, the text says, though so many put their trust in him because of the signs he did, he refused to entrust himself to them. And John puts this very emphatically. He says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to those who trusted him because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man because he himself knew what was in man. Now, what does Jesus know about man? Well, John leaves this as a question for us to ponder. But in the context, in the context, it comes down to the kind of faith that people had in Christ. And I would suggest to you that there are today, there is today also, faith in Christ that rests on the signs that he did. There is faith in Christ that rests on the signs that he did that really goes no further than that. Even, even rising from the dead. Faith that rests on the signs that he did. You know, you think about this. Jesus died for my sins. Now, you think about that as four or five words. Now put a hyphen between each one. Jesus died for my sins, right? That's like a message, right? That is a meaning message. That is a, that is a symbol of message. And how many people say that? I know, Jesus died for my sins. It's like this is one of the things he did. They never go beyond it. They never go, they, they like that he did that. They like that he fed 5,000. They like that he raised the dead. They like that he, that he healed the, the, the children of distraught parents. They like that he put the authorities in their place. They like that he was courageous. They like all kinds of things that Jesus did out of the person that he was. But there's this faith that does rest on the signs that Jesus did, but that utterly fails to take into account who he is and why we need him. There is a faith without hunger for Christ. There's a faith without awe and worship of Christ. There's this faith that's from a distance, not the faith of a disciple who follows Christ, the faith of a spectator who looks at the things he did and doesn't mind doing that. So, pardon me, but once or twice or three times a year, they'll come and look. But it's not Christ they're seeking. It's the reminder of the sign that he performed, but it's not the person. And it's not the need that's felt and known. It is not accurate to conclude from John's words that Jesus entrusted himself to no one, ever or at all. Because when the signs that Jesus did direct us as signs are intended to do when they direct us to the truth of who Christ is and how he was destined to suffer for us and how much we need him when those signs direct us to Christ and who he is 
then in fact such faith is born in us that it is said of us that we have been born again. And we become his followers and his worshipers. And we acknowledge him as our Lord. And we would want it no other way. And it is a lifelong commitment. This is where John's going to lead us. This is the faith that the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts. This is the faith that, that saves. So I want to encourage you this morning, don't, don't settle for the lesser faith, no matter how good your reason. Don't settle for less, a less faith, a lesser faith, but for the faith that brings you before Christ himself in all of the truth and holiness of God. And acknowledge him. Acknowledge him as your Lord. Submit to him and embrace him as your Savior. That's the faith. That is the faith that's described when you possess it. That is the faith that amounts to being born again. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your mercy and goodness to us. We thank you for this passage because it really speaks to our hearts as, as Christians, as the church. My life, I can come up with good reasons. Good reasons to set aside or to ignore your holiness and things you plainly said. All kinds of things. Lord, they're not valid. They're not valid at all. And uh, Father, I, we do want to be cleansed. We want the insight from you and the wherewithal you know, to be cleansed in every area of our lives and in our church, which is to say we want to be full-fledged worshipers and full-fledged followers of Christ every day, so we can be among those who lift high, truly lift high the cross. Amen.